0: Older fires were more like Burning Man, where you had, like, these giant wooden structures just catching on fire as opposed to the forest themselves being so fuel-laden.
1: We need to recognize that fire is necessary, it's beneficial, and we do have to learn to accept some, some amount of fire on the landscape.
2: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the second season of the Earthlings podcast, where we explore the collective future we're all hurtling towards, good or bad, and the information we have today to make better decisions for ourselves. And today we're going to talk about wildfires and how we can learn to live with them. My name is Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and I support startups in the energy transition with my PR firm, Technica Communications, and all genders in their professional careers with women in clean tech and sustainability. And I do this podcast with Christian. Hi, I'm Christian Roseland. I'm a writer
3: and analyst. And I'm excited about today's topic. I mean, as excited as you can be about something as dark and messed up Mm. as wildfires, because this has been a really serious matter. I mean, they've always been around, right? They've always been a a staple of the forest. But over the past 10 years, fires seem like they have becoming hotter, larger, more prominent. In some places, they're just
2: statistically like have burned more acres. Mm -hmm. And we've lost entire towns recently, which have really brought the topic to more prominence. And social media has proliferated in the past 10 years as well. So some of that could be perception and climate change isn't getting any better. The droughts have been very consistent. Yeah. You know, and we also saw the first recorded Giga Fire where two
3: multi-hundred thousand acre fires in Northern California came together to form a burned area of over a million acres by the time it went out, which mm-hmm. is a lot of
2: trees. That's, that's a lot of land. Yes. And it's, it's almost so much that it's hard to conceptualize. And when you think about history, I was doing some research for this episode and You know, we didn't have the term gigafire in 1825, but there was a 3 million acre forest fire that ran through Maine and New Brunswick, Canada. You know, while some of this stuff is new and catastrophic, et cetera, there's also historical context that we're going to explore here to help bring some stuff into perspective because, frankly, what we're seeing today is that there's no wildfire season anymore. Nope, nope. There was a
3: catastrophic fire in Boulder, Colorado in February when there should have been snow on the ground. Yeah. It's not just in one region of the world anymore. I mean, here we are talking about California. You lived in California. I grew up in California and Oregon. You know, we're seeing massive wildfires in the past few years in Australia. We're seeing enormous wildfires in Siberia. And those don't get talked about as much because not as many people living out in Siberia, not the same kind of media attention, as well as the ones across the Western United States. And then, you know, not even Canada, Brazil, you know, other places. So... It's a global problem, and uh, it's
2: not going away, as you said. It's not going away, and also I have this uncomfortable feeling that the worse wildfires get, the fewer trees we have, and then therefore the harder it is for us to combat climate change. But then you also have the forest growing back and younger trees. We also know younger trees actually consume more carbon dioxide than older trees. So there's some little here, little there, I suppose. So today what we're going to explore is the good and the bad around wildfires, because the force does need some level of fire. New technology that's being designed to help us fight fire with drones and prevent utility-caused wildfires. But before we get to those things, we're gonna start with a friend of yours, Christian, who helps us cover the current state of wildfires and how they compare to history. Thanks, yes. Dustin Mulvaney is an associate
3: professor at San Jose State University. He's also a Santa Cruz resident and he experienced the lightning complex fires in 2020 up close and documented the aftermath as a personal project.
0: You know, I was up pretty late that night and I could see suddenly all these flashes of light way off on the horizon. And these fires were down by Big Sur at that time. So I immediately checked the technical forecast discussion and you know, followed my weather people I follow on Twitter and was checking out what they were talking about. And they were showing like a big, big lightning storm moving up, dry lightning. So not any rain associated, dry lightning storm moving up the coast. And I was getting text messages from friends who were like, what's going on? It looks crazy, fireworks display going off. I stayed up for maybe an hour watching it. And then I was up by 5 a.m., you know, it was still going on it was going on in, into the into the morning, into daybreak. And lo and behold, a few fires had started. So there's all these little fires that had started. And I remember texting a friend of mine who works with the, the county that there was a couple of fires that were burning in areas that have a lot of fuel, a lot of fuel. So those fires burned for a couple of days. I wouldn't say it wasn't damp at that point because we had some really hot temperatures that weekend. Um, in fact, record-breaking temperatures that, that weekend but they let the fires go and then one of those nights they just started burning hotter and hotter and they all merged then suddenly you got i don't i forget what the acreage is something like 50,000 acres burned within like 4 or 5 hours so it was so it was just these little fires burning 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 and then suddenly yeah.
2: lightning complex fire is what it was called Burned from August 17th to October 2nd. And I was living in the Bay Area as well at that time. And it seemed like every day you went outside and it smelled like a campfire from where I was. But I was pretty far removed from where those fires were actually taking place. What was it like living in that area during those months when these fires are happening? Like, what did you experience day to day? And how did people perhaps change their behavior because
0: of it? This wildfire smoke got trapped in the inversion. And then suddenly, you know, we're all stuck in this layer of wildfire smoke. So it was a very, very strange time. And and definitely people changed their behavior. People didn't go outside. I mean, I, you know, with a a small toddler and um, we didn't go, I don't think we went outside for six weeks or so because we just, until the air started to clear out a little bit and they got some of the fire to stop falling or the smoke to stop falling into the inversion layer. So you definitely changed.
3: How did you manage that? How did you manage not going outside for six weeks?
0: Especially in the
2: summertime.
0: (laughs) I think COVID had trained us well you know, first few months still of COVID. So, or the first half year of COVID. So we were kind of already a little bit in lockdown mode. Wasn't too hard to, to change course from that. You know, we were already mm-hmm. trying to protect our kids from the pandemic. So,
2: yeah, I remember we used to always, we would never use our air conditioners and except for maybe two weeks in the summer. And that year we ran our AC for months at a time and we paid the price because they were not the most efficient air conditioners. They're probably the cheapest air conditioners the apartment complex could install 15 years ago. You know, so we were paying out the nose for electricity, but what else are you gonna do?
3: Yeah, that's quite tough. So tell me, when did you first go back into a burned area and what was that like? Can you walk us through that?
0: What was jarring for me was seeing, you know, these forests that were, you know, very thick and dense and and obscured views, suddenly being able to see into the valley or toward the ocean where I hadn't seen before. I'm also seeing, you know, large stands of certain kinds of forests that were. Totally dead, but I was also seeing the redwoods sprout back already, which is really impressive because we hadn't had any rain still that year, um, and they were already vigorously resprouting, which is called epicormic growth with redwoods, and um, it's just what what they're, they've evolved to do is to um, respond that way. So that was it, it was expected from me because I know a lot of redwood ecologists who have talked about this before. But it still was surprising to see that you could have such an intensely burning fire affect the tree all the way up. It burned all the way up, basically. And then they just suddenly start pushing out new branches to try to um, regain their stature that they once had as big, tall trees. And out of the ground, too. So tan oaks and um, huckleberry, all sorts of stuff was just coming out of the ground. Like big shrubs, like two by two. Already, So that was um, surprising, but comforting to know that we we didn't lose everything that it didn't like you you worry that the fires burn hot enough, it could kill trees or it could, um, you know, kill the seed bed and things like that. And, And it seems that the forest was already responding pretty well. The different forests respond differently, but the redwood forest was the, one of the first that were was really greening up.
3: Oh, that's really encouraging. Yeah, so let's go back to that historic record. You know, these aren't the first catastrophic fires that the Santa Cruz Mountains have experienced. Can you tell us about
0: the fires 100 years ago? Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, the 2020 fires I think are special for a couple of reasons. I think the fuel load was just enormous, and you have the climate change adding on to that with extra dry extra heat, maybe even extra growth during the wet times, not not really clear. But the the older fires, you know, some of these were really, really big. And I found a 40 mile long fire. It's funny, they describe in lengths because they don't have acreages back then. But I found a 40 mile long fire caused by a shotgun blast in like 1860s. So when you read the descriptions, for example, of a big fire that happened in 1904 near Big Basin, right around the same spot. You know, those fires traveled the same directions, generally. Um, they started once, started around the same spots, moved the same way, but they moved much slower. And that's like they're describing them as being in this spot here one day, and then they think they'll be in the next spot the next day. Whereas our fire in 2020 just went up in a flash. So there, there was a different thing going on. The other thing that's different is the damages. So whereas we have houses that are catching on fire from mainly from embers and like, that's a whole side point of, of like, should these houses have even burned if they were actually hardened, you know, hardened more than, than they are today. But, um, the damages were to things like timber, standing timber or actual sawmills. Some of the fires were caused by sawmills, which is not surprising, right? You're. Cutting wood and causing you have machinery and yeah, sparks. Yeah, tremendous amount of
2: fuel there.
0: I mean, sawdust is super flammable. So I was, I, you know, jokingly said it, it. was the older fires were more like Burning Man, where you had like these giant wooden structures just catching on fire, as opposed to the forest themselves being so fuel laden, and then having that extra drying from climate impacts. You know, was really an accelerant to make these fire the 2020 fires much more salient.
2: I'm wondering, you know, with everything you know about the history of these fires, and now we hear of these record-breaking megafires and California's on fire. Do you, when you hear that stuff, do you take it with a grain of salt, knowing that the records don't go back far enough? Or do you feel like the fires are getting bigger and more intense because of the drought California has been going through and climate change, acceleration, etc.?
0: I think it's both. I think it's it's a little bit of both. So there's certainly a bigger fuel load up, and obviously the you know, the hotter weather, drier weather, and you know, climate induced drought, if if that's what's happening, as some people are suggesting. But the data don't go back far enough. And in fact, the way they counted acreages, well, even when they have acreages, is is a little it's hard to um, just go off the acreage number. So for example, even with the CZU lightning complex fires, which I think burned 86,000 acres, something like that. You know, a lot of that was, was backfiring operations. So like, un, and, and if you go back, actually, it's interesting to look at the, his, the history and they don't report acreages back then for some reason. They just, I don't think they had a, a handle on it. Um, or at least I don't see it very often reported, but you could, you, in their descriptions, they describe the fire here and they described the backfiring operations over there. So there is almost a distinction between the backfiring operations and what was the wildfire. Whereas we put all that in the same number now. Like the acreage represents not only the uncontrolled wildfire, but also the backfiring operations, which for safety reasons gets sometimes wider and wider. You want to make sure that you don't put people in harm's way. So as a matter of practice, they might be staying back farther or they might be backfiring from farther away to make sure fuel you know, stays out of certain communities. So, so the acreage numbers are are hard to to interpret on their own.
3: This is such a reminder of what, how hard it is to understand the past because we didn't even have the same measurements.
2: Mm-hmm. Acres are not the same as they were. No, or you
3: measured them in miles, and you know, like so we don't actually. We know there were big fires, but we, we can't know the extent.
2: Now, the record is jumbled. You can't. Com- it's like comparing apples to oranges. You know, in the past, they were counting just the area of the fire. And today we're counting all of the burned area, including backfires and fires that are created to stop the fire from spreading.
3: Yeah. And yet they are definitely more visible because we have more people living in the wildland urban interface.
2: More cell phones. Everybody's got a camera.
3: Yep. Everybody's taking a picture if not we're at home doom scrolling. Yep. Watching videos of people fleeing their home and freaking out from the comfort of our computers.
2: You know, even if you're not close to the fire, you can smell the fire from
3: miles and miles away. Dozens of miles sometimes. Yeah.
2: You know, it's interesting. So if we look
3: back at the causes of these catastrophic fires, these lightning complex fires were a bit of an anomaly. That's about 5% of catastrophic fires, and it seems like so many of them are caused, so many of fires the ignition is caused by human carelessness. Or
2: Or utility oversight. We'll get to that later in the show. Yeah. But I mean, beyond all that, like we're not going to get rid of humans, so we're not ever going to get rid of this carelessness. We're not going to get rid of lightning. You know, if we got our act together, we could probably mitigate climate change, but... We're behind on that one. (laughs) We're, We're behind on that one.
3: Yeah, and you know, the thing is, that statistic actually bothers me a bit because they're talking about the cause of the ignition, they're not ca- talking about the causes of the circumstances that make the forest ready to catch on fire and have a catastrophic fire. It's like the Smokey the Bear thing, you know, mm-hmm. it's, and that's, that's important mm-hmm. and all. I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay yeah. that, but that's not what's causing you to have a tin-
2: dry tinderbox of a forest. Laden with fuel. Yeah. yeah. Ready to just burn up at the moment's notice. So... We have humans bringing the ignition. We have the geological record that's showing we've always had these fires. And, and that's actually, we need fire. So fire, in a way, can be a good thing. Species have adapted to fire. They need fire to reproduce. So if it's inevitable, how can we look at it differently? And that's a question that we put to our next guest, Molly Hunter. She's On the research faculty at the school of natural resources and the environment at the university of arizona and her primary work is serving as a science advisor to the joint fire science program which is a bunch of federal agencies that work with the government to fund research related to wildland fire you
1: know so for decades fires were essentially eliminated from landscapes, from forested ecosystems in the West. And that happened for many, many decades. And, you know, in that time, that meant that plants and trees, they establish, they grow, they die, and that biomass just accumulates. And so we're really still dealing with decades and decades of accumulation of that biomass. And that's fueling some of our fires today and you know, big reason why some of them are so much hotter than um, they would have been historically. Everything's drier too. Everything's drier. Everything's hotter. You know, and and one thing that's been uh, really well documented, you know, with the warming and drying trends that we've seen over the last few decades, you know, resulting from climate change, is that we have longer fire seasons. You know, it used to we used to have these very kind of characteristic fire seasons in the Southwest, for example, where I'm from. You know, fire season would start late in the spring, early summer after the snowpack had melted and would go into late June or early July after the monsoon rainstorms that, you know, typically come would kind of dampen the mm-hmm. the fire mm-hmm. season. Um, You know, then in northern latitudes, Idaho, Montana, Colorado, you know, it's, the weather is cooler. So the snowpack would stick around longer into the season and fire season wouldn't really start until summer, mid to late summer. But climate change has kind of put a wrench in all of that. There's just so much more evaporative demand for water. <laughs> you know, that snow melts early if we get a decent snowpack at all. Um, the fuels dry out very quickly. And that means, you know, pretty much any time of year now in somewhere in the West, there's likely to be, you know, conditions that are conducive to fire spreading.
3: To jump over, you know, you mentioned that there have been fires here, obviously, for as long as there's been a West and before we acknowledged as such, but what role do they play in the ecosystems of forests in the Western United States and grasslands? Glad you asked that because it is really important, I think,
1: for us all to recognize that fire is not all bad. You know, even though obviously it can be very destructive um, to communities, it doesn't mean that um, it's always bad. And it does play a really, really critical role in forested ecosystems. And these ecosystems have evolved with fire and they play the role of sort of just cleaning out, uh, biomass that accumulates. And so, you know, in our, in your yard, you might rake leaves, you might trim trees, you might pull weeds. I mean, fire kind of plays that natural role in forested ecosystems and it unlocks nutrients that are stored in that biomass and releases it back to the soil. And that allows new plants Um, to grow. You know, and oftentimes that new plant growth is really attractive to wildlife because it's so high in nutrients. So as the fire is sort of turning over biomass, it's creating food and habitat for wildlife. So it really does play a a critical role in kind of maintaining the the functioning of of these ecosystems.
3: You know, on that note, I, I recall when I lived in the South, hearing about the, the longleaf pine, which had formerly occupied much of the south before it was replaced with loblolly, and which was a great timber tree, but that hearing that it only really reproduced after fires, that there was fire was a necessary part of the reproductive cycle of that species of tree. Uh, is this something that you see with other plants and trees? Or is fire a necessary component of the reproduction of some of these species? And if so, how how prevalent is this?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it you know it's one of the reasons why I got into fire in the first place. The the adaptations that plants have specifically to fire are just really fascinating. So you mentioned yeah, longleaf pine is an example in the southeast. In the west, there's all kinds of pine and conifer species that have what we call serotonous cones. Kind of a big term, but it basically just means the cones you know the cones which hold the seeds, they're basically glued shut. You know, so the seeds are are held into the cone and they're only released in response to heat from fire. So that's a really specific adaptation to fire that these plants really, you know, indicates they really need it in order to kind of maintain that species and that ecosystem. Mm -hmm.
3: So let's get a little bit more into that relationship between land management and uh, wildfires. Obviously, this isn't the forest of 200 years ago. You know, we have large-scale commercial logging in western forests. Can you talk a little bit about the way that we currently manage our forests, including log our forests in the West and wildfires? Can you give us some broad trends about how these
1: two interact? Usually a fire starts by by spreading through sort of the needle litter and leaf litter that's on the floor, right? And and that kind of fire that's just sort of spreading through that biomass on the surface is usually something we consider benign, right? And and actually something we'd like to see in a forest, it's that, it's that fire playing its natural role. But what we don't like is when fire gets up into the canopy of trees and spreads from tree to tree. And that's what we call a crown fire. Those are the really, really hot fires that you see on the evening news and that are causing all of the, that destruction for the ecosystem and for communities. So that's why it's really important to really target those smaller trees because that's what's going to reduce the threat of those really destructive crown fires. Now, of course, logging operations haven't always done that, right? Sometimes they, for economic reasons, they'll focus on the larger trees. And if it's that kind of a treatment, it's not going to do very much, if anything, to really reduce the threat of wildfire. But even in a logging operation, you know, where you're talking about kind of changing everything to a single story, even if you thin out the forest so that there aren't as many trees you know, um, then that can, that can also have the effect of kind of reducing the potential for a really high intensity fire. So you want the trees to not necessarily, their crowns to be touching because that allows the fire to spread from tree to tree to tree, if that makes
2: sense. When we talk about the health of our forests, I'm curious to know how that contributes to the frequency or the size of today's forest fires. I hear a lot about the pine beetle infestation.
1: Yeah, so things like beetle outbreaks and disease outbreaks. So those are, you know, it's kind of similar to fire in that they're, they're natural and common elements of functioning forested ecosystems. But in the same way that this buildup of biomass has influenced fire regimes, the, the thickening of forests so and the more trees you have on the landscape, that also kind of exasperates some of these other issues you're talking about, you know, beetle outbreaks and disease outbreaks. And with more drought and more Dead trees on the landscape. This also kind of creates more biomass for um, that can support fire spread. And you know, I'd say in general, a lot of these practices. I mean, land management agencies recognize kind of what we need to do to to increase the health of these forests, and that does include things like thinning and reintroducing fire where it's appropriate. But the reality is, there's just such a, a huge backlog of work that needs to be done. By some estimates. You know, some folks think we should be treating five to six million acres a year, um, in order to kind of catch up with, with the lack of fire on the landscapes over so many decades. But the reality is we just haven't been able to, to even come anywhere close to that. So that's why even though these practices are pretty common now and, and well recognized that they're needed, um, in forest management, we're just, there's still a lot of forests out there that are, that are out of whack. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and what happens to the health of the forest after a fire? I'm curious to know, especially, I've heard that some of these megafires can burn so hot that they're heating up the ground, like eight feet underground to such an extent that they're killing the, the mycelial network that the mushrooms provide that can also be valuable to the, the forest regenerating and the, just the health of the forest in general.
1: Yeah, you know, um, in a lot of areas where you're seeing it's just really massive patches, matches massive areas that are burning with really, really high intensity, killing all the trees within the area. Oftentimes, you know, these seeds of some of these tree species don't travel very far. And so they're not really able to make it back into those big patches. And it doesn't always necessarily, you know, think it will come back as forest. Oftentimes it'll transition into a shrubland or a grassland. And that might be something that we just have to live with and then we're probably going to see more and more of with these big big fires
2: with land management could you bring the forest back if it wouldn't naturally come back it, it's itself by planting certain trees or seedlings
1: yeah so tree planting is a common practice after um, a lot of these events but you know there's there can be a high failure rate and and I think a lot of scientists and managers now are really thinking critically about what do we you know, what strategies should we employ going forward? I mean, we would like to be very strategic about where we plant and what we plant with. Can we, can we use more drought adapted varieties and can we plant them, plant, you know, in areas like maybe on north facing slopes where we, you know, it's likely to be cooler and wetter. So those are things some, some things that people are talking about, thinking really critically about what planting strategies will work going forward and work in the face of climate change because we know that these ecosystems going forward are going to be more stressed so how do you in the face of that you know still maintain a forest those are you know open questions but there's certainly things that a lot of people are thinking about mm-hmm. and i think some
2: people would argue that some of the failure rate of those seedlings is could be due to the mycelial network that's missing. Absolutely, yeah,
3: yeah. So we, we've talked about a lot of different factors in the fires. Uh, climate change seems to keep coming up. If you if you had to rank the various factors in why we're seeing the increased severity of fires, where would climate change show up among those? Is that a primary role? And what do you expect as we go forward?
1: The IPCC, the Intergovernmental um, Panel on Climate Change, they try to look at all of these different things that we're seeing on the planet and how much of the change that we're seeing can be attributed to climate change. And uh, from what I see, they've estimated that since 1984, about half of the area burned in the West can be attributed to climate change. In other words, you know, we still would have seen kind of an increase in, increase in severe fire um, over the last few decades just based on kind of the fuels situation. But that means climate change is certainly playing a role in exasperating that as well.
3: Oh, wow. I, I did not didn't think that it would be that much. That's really
1: and, I and that's guess really can... I think contributing in that study the size of fire again, so looking at area burned, but the severity question is a little bit harder to tease out, I think.
2: And I guess then the assumption is that percentage might only grow as climate change worsens.
1: Yeah. I mean we you know, we've already seen a, a lengthening of the fire season, of course, where it is a year round season, but still it's we still see a ramp up, right? I mean most of the activity is now Um, We we see fires in in January and December, but they're they're still relatively infrequent. But, you know, I think we can expect those kinds of events being a lot more common if we are to see a, a continued warming.
2: So if you were to wave a magic wand to change something about how humans interact with wildfires, what would you do?
1: Well... I, you know i think what we need to do as a society is to it's really a change in mindset and how we think about fire and I, I really mean that collectively as a society i mean i first of all as we mentioned we need to recognize that fire is necessary it's beneficial and we do have to learn to accept some some amount of fire on the landscape but i think also because it's going to take so long to work on this backlog of acreage that's in need of treatment, and and because of climate change, I think those two factors alone should tell us that we're not going to be able to eliminate the fire problem, right? So we do have to learn to better adapt and learn to better coexist with wildfire moving forward.
3: Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that coexistence looks like, because we've heard people, you know, we've heard uh, people say. We should stop building in the wildland-urban interface in the West, particularly in California, that that's just not something we can do going forward. What does the future look like where human beings uh, coexist with fire successfully in the West? And what do we have to do to, re- to get there?
1: Yeah, um, I think what's becoming challenging is that in the West, there are probably very few places that wouldn't be considered wildland-urban interface anymore. You know, <laughs> so where where would you build? I mean, Unless you're dead in the middle of, of a major city. You know, there's, there's just so many areas where people are influenced by wildfire now. And even if they don't live in an area where their home could be threatened, they're, they're threatened in terms of the smoke impacts. So there's, I think we're all going to be impacted by it to some degree. So, so what could we do? Um, you know, even, even if your home is, is threatened by fire, there's a lot that you can do to protect it, to, to, you know, increase the probability that it will survive if a fire comes near it. And I think it's important to us, for us, I think, to think not only about what we could do as individuals, but what can we do as a community? You know, because in these respects, it it matters not only what I do, but it matters what what my neighbor does. You know, because if my neighbor hasn't cleared all their debris then my home, is going to be just as threatened as if I, you know, build a moat around it. So we really need to think about... um, what can we do to collectively organize to really reduce the, the, the threat of, of firing communities and do all of those things that we know work. And in new construction, you know, making sure that we're adopting building codes, you know, that, that are going to make sure that, that homes are more protected from fire. And then I would say, you know, from, uh, you know, if you are impacted by a fire. Another things that we can think about to be better prepared is thinking about things like, do you have an evacuation plan? Do you have an air filter? Or do you know the vulnerable people in your community and can you talk to them about what they would do in the event of evacuation? I mean, I think those are the kinds of things we need to do too to sort of change our mindset about thinking that these things are probably going to be inevitable and we just have to be better prepared for when they do occur.
2: So no more gender reveals in the forest with fireworks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking for a friend.
3: So what haven't we talked about that you think is important for our listeners to know about human beings and wildfires, how we interact?
1: Well, gosh, you know, one um, thing that we haven't talked so much about, I've mentioned prescribed burning, but uh, it's a, it's another thing that I think there's an interesting cultural and social element to it where um you know if you mentioned being in the the southeast there's a long long history of prescribed burning there and the public expects it and accepts it and um you know i spent some time burning in florida and when you talk to the public they say oh man i just i love the smell of smoke <laughs> you know and and we're so far in the west we're so far from that mindset and that change in in perception and culture so I think the more that we could do to really um, better understand prescribed fire, um, it's not without its risk, obviously, but for the most part, you know, managers who are conducting it know what they're doing. And it's really just a critical element of forest management. Mm-hmm.
2: I've even heard of some indigenous cultures collaborating with the forest managers and participating in, in these prescribed burns together because there's a cultural history of what works and i appreciate that there's sort of a coming together of of these different bodies of people
1: absolutely and this is an area where california in a lot of respects is kind of leading the the way really trying to embrace the knowledge that indigenous cultures have in in fire management and fire stewardship and really trying to have them lead the way and bring that back into the fold
2: So I really appreciate Molly bringing us back to the awareness that sometimes the best way to fight fire is with fire and that indigenous cultures have a history of doing this and that we are bringing that back to help us uh, live with fire more
3: holistically. Yeah, and I think California has a really interesting take on this. CAL FIRE is actively partnering with Native tribes in its fire management plan mm-hmm. and calling them on them to bring back the once- Prohibited practice of setting fires right. to
2: manage wildlands, which is amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one quote I came I, I came across, and I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I found it really interesting, was from this gentleman named Redbird Willie, who's a land steward of um, Santa Rosa County, and he said something like, "Fire is an important part of our community, and we have to treat it with respect and honor."
3: Yeah. Fire is a part of your community, which I think in California, it's becoming
2: more real than it is part of your community. (laughs) Yeah, maybe an uninvited guest, but a guest nonetheless. The guest
3: that shows up to your party and drinks all the beer. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like this is actually spreading and that Oregon and New Mexico are also working with Native peoples and Indigenous tribes. Mm -hmm. There's even this network, the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network.
2: And for me, that's a light to look towards because one thing that always frustrates me about problems in society is that they just keep happening and nobody is like, we keep trying to do the same thing to prevent it rather than doing something different.
3: Suppress, suppress, suppress in the entire 20th century. We're like, there's too much fuel in the forest. Let's, you know, let's make sure that there's no fires and more fuel builds up. And then, yeah, this cycle, whereas now, you know, We're doing backburning, controlled burns, prescribed burns, and starving the fire
2: of the fuel that it needs to spread and become catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And these indigenous tribes have a, a history of understanding the landscape and understanding how to do those prescribed burns and where to do them and when to do them and all of this stuff that we, as people who are not native to this land, don't know. So we're accessing that information, which, which previously we ignored. Right. And ignored and suppressed. Yes. Yeah. And you know, these, these controlled burns are interesting. I've
3: had friends, ex-girlfriends who were wildland firefighters, and they would do these controlled burns, setting them manually. I remember mm-hmm. calling up an ex-girlfriend and she was telling me, oh yeah, I'm burning North Dakota um, today.
2: <laughs> oh my God. She
3: would go out into the field using this drip torch or even helicopters and just, you know, setting things on fire. But there's one entrepreneur who's figured out how to use drones for this.
2: That's right. His name is Carrick Detweiler, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Drone Amplified. He's also a professor at the University of Nebraska, and we're going to talk to him about his fireballs.
4: So our system called Ignis actually attaches to off-the-shelf drones, and it carries these little ignition spheres. So there are these little... Uh so a little smaller than ping pong balls, but they have potassium permanganate inside, which is one chemical that we then puncture the ball right before we drop it and inject glycol. And that starts a chemical reaction that starts a fire 30 to 60 seconds later. So our Ignis system, we carry four, over 400 of these little ping pong balls. And you know, so we you know, send it out and it drops them in precise locations where the firefighters are directing it to go. And with that, they can actually start these backburns on wildfires to help contain the wildfires.
2: So would you use these drones only for these active wildfires, or would you also use them in the preventative fire management?
4: Yeah, so our our drone systems, the Ignis, uh, you know, is used both on wildfires and also for prescribed fires. So really, anytime you want to, you know, set a fire, you know, if you can do it with a drone, then you're actually, you know, saving saving money by not having to have full-size helicopters, but also really increasing safety so that you're not putting firefighters at risk either. And
3: sure. And so to be clear, are these autonomous drones or are they being directed by an operator to who's flying them to know where to drop the...
4: Yeah. So there's always a firefighter operating these drones. And actually, it's normally a team of two or three firefighters operating each drone so that they they have that fire expertise. They also... You know, spend a lot of time actually training to pilot these drones and to coordinate with other aircraft in the area. But that said, the our system ha- also has a lot of intelligence and autonomy capabilities so that it, it's smart about knowing where you should be able to start a fire and where you shouldn't. So you have to actually kind of, you can import the burn plan to say, okay, here's the area we want to burn and tell the drone this is the only area we want to wanna to start a fire in so that if the pilot isn't paying attention and goes out of that zone a little bit, it won't start the fire there. We can also set up, you know, much more autonomous missions where you can, you know, define an area where you want to burn and have it, you know, do all the flying, flying itself. But it's always monitored by firefighters who are really, you know, in close coordination with the rest of the firefighters on the fire.
3: Mm-hmm. So who are your customers? And are they directly sold to the Forest Service? And and where are they using these? Is this primarily in fires throughout the West? Uh, you know, is there some differentiation here?
4: Yeah, so our primary customers are federal firefighting agencies. So the U.S. Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, the National Parks um, but we also have a number of our systems out with various states. You know, so from Oregon to Florida, we have uh, you know a range of state agencies using our system. And then there are actually you know private groups and contractors with our system. So like the Nature Conservancy does a whole lot of land management using fire, and they now have a few of our systems that they're using to you know help increase the number of acres they're able to. Uh, use prescribed fire. On.
2: Can you tell us a story about how these drones were used in a fire? Um, maybe some kind of not necessarily like case study, but like something mem- a memorable story of that really illustrate for us how these drones were used.
4: You know, really, uh, the most telling thing was that you know one of the first fires fires we were on, and this was with you know the our federal partners. They were operating a system. You know, after a day of operations, it went from Like, okay, let's do this for, you know, half an hour when we can squeeze you into... They were doing like 12, 13-hour shifts of just constantly using our system to fight the fires. And, And partly, they realized that the drones can safely operate all night long, whereas manned aircraft near fires, they're not going to fly them at night. So they really doubled the amount of time that you could actually work on a fire by being able to do the prescribed burns with the drone that night then send in the boots on the ground in the morning to clean things up and coordinate with the manned aircraft. So they really doubled the amount of time they could could use the system. Wow,
3: that's really impressive. It's, yeah. Congratulations on that success.
4: Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah.
3: So, you know, it, this gets me thinking. We're speaking about the, the firefighters with their shovels and their drop torches, and certainly wildland firefighting is an extremely dangerous occupation. And even before other factors are considered, it's it sort of makes it feel like that's an area that would be ripe for automation. So as we look forward towards the future, is this just the beginning of autonomous firefighting? And do you think we'll say see robot firefighters in twenty thirty?
4: That's a that's a really good question. I I don't know that we'll see fully. I don't I don't think that people will ever be out of the equation. So really, right now we're providing more capabilities per person. So. You know, if you look at, at fires, you know, they bring in people from, you know, Australia and South Africa and Chile to the United States when it's wildfire season because there are just not enough firefighters. So, you know, any tools we can give them to increase their, you know, productivity, their capability, and increase their safety, I think that's that's a big win. And I think there's always going to be a huge demand for the people who are, you know, skilled operators and willing to put their lives on the line to protect our lives.
2: You know, I appreciate that Carrick brought us back to the heart of this matter, which is that these fires put people's lives on the line, citizens and firefighters.
3: Yeah, and at any time you're starting a fire on purpose, it's still tricky. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have steep, rugged terrain, sweltering heat, unpredictable wind.
2: Mm -hmm. Fire tornadoes. Yeah fire (laughs) truck.
3: And so, you know, you end up with things like heavy smoke, and when the night comes, helicopters and airplanes have a hard time navigating it. And then, you know, that just puts more work on exhausted and exposed ground crews, as we've seen in recent fires.
2: Yeah, and you know, when people are exhausted, they make mistakes. Yeah. They overlook things, right? And at the end of the day, we want to be protecting people as much as we can. So, I'm so excited for what he's doing, and I, I really hope that it makes a dent in um, our ability to fight these fires, but another thing that this is posed here, which is a difficult challenge, is in these massive forests, you have all of this infrastructure, which uh, is our is our power grid, and it's these pa- massive power lines, huge transmission lines running through the forest, and as we know, these have been causing wildfires, especially in California. Yeah, in 2017, power lines owned by PG, the
3: utility. Pacific Gas and Electric Company were blamed for a dozen Northern California fires, resulting in 18 related deaths.
2: Oh, yeah. Like the Redwood Fire was like 36,000 acres and nine people died. And the Atlas Fire was 52,000 and six people died. And then in 2018, you had like 17 more major wildfires, all triggered by power lines. Yeah. And it's funny because they can
3: actually spark fires in a number of ways. They can spark fires when they're downed, when they have contact with trees or other vegetation. There's this thing called a conductor slap, you know, other kinds of equipment failure. And so you have these high winds, these dry temperatures,
2: and this aging infrastructure, and it's it's a deadly combo. And it just blows my mind that we don't know what's going on with these power lines. I mean, think about the campfire alone. 115 kilovolt high-powered transmission line cutting through the mountains and forested regions of Northern California, rugged terrain. I mean, we're talking 1,368 steel towers, 186 miles. That's huge. That's a huge transmission infrastructure that we have no eyes on. Yeah,
3: and how could you be expected to know what's going on there? I, You know, to be fair, audits did find that pg e was late in fixing... Oh, 900 problems on its towers and other equipment, including two critical threats that languished for more than 600 days before being repaired. Yeah, two years. Yeah. They didn't fix these critical threats. I mean, PG&E does have a safety record, which is not exactly impressive.
2: Well, and, but, you know, San Diego Gas and Electric has the same problem. Like, these utility companies just don't have eyes on what's going on. It's a massive machine, our electrical grid, and... And it's, it hasn't really been brought into the modern age, which is why I'm excited to introduce this next guest, because he's a, an entrepreneur and a friend of mine, and he's designed this really elegant, simple way to give us this information in real time that we need. His name is Tim Barat, and he's the CEO of Gridware. Uh, he wants to give utilities like PG&E and San Diego Gas and Electric this ability to know immediately where the faults are on their lines and give them the data to help manage the grid more reliably.
5: It's really challenging whether you're an operator uh, in dispatch or whether you're actually out in the field. There's a lot of components out there that bring electricity to your your light bulbs and to your computer uh, that can fail. and. The best way to do that right now is to go out and and either walk, hike, or drive down those power lines and find where something has gone wrong. It's very rare that you'll know why uh, because you're there after the fact. So you might have power lines down on the ground. You might have a pole down. uh, There might be vegetation that's burnt on the ground. And you can get an idea for maybe what has happened, but you've got so many situations where a customer calls up I'm out of out of power, the, the lineman or the troubleman will get a call from dispatch. They spend the next couple hours looking uh, and they finally find some evidence. It might be a pole top fire or, or maybe they don't find anything. And then they restore and it's just an open question. And so the list of open questions that each utility has uh, grows on a daily basis. Uh, And there really is no way to answer those questions because you're not out there. Uh, It's not physically possible to have somebody out there watching the grid all the time until now.
3: So this is interesting. Let's talk a little bit about how you you got here personally and how you, you came up with the concept for this. I understand that used to be a lineman in Australia. What did you experience there that inspired you along this path?
5: Well, yeah, we could talk for hours about this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are a couple of things I think come to mind. Uh, really, when I started working on this problem, I was really focused on how I could have impact. Um, I was going to school, doing my undergraduate degree, and I was studying electrical engineering and computer science how could I bring in that experience that I'd had in the field in Australia? And really, we don't have any information about what's going wrong, but we also don't have a really good way to measure the integrity of the equipment. Uh, and if you like relate this to how we, we, we do healthcare, as an example, uh, there are many ways that, as humans, we can go to the doctor and get ground truth checkups on, on, on our health. But those systems don't really exist for the grid, and yet they're so important. And as an example, we get taught before we climb poles to hit it with a hammer. We listen to how it sounds. Uh, if if it if it sounds uh, dull and like a thud sound, then it means it's unsafe to climb. But this is very <laughs> qualitative. It's <laughs> this seems a little primitive
3: for checking for safety.
5: <laughs> and so. It becomes a function of time. All right, you've been out there long enough. We can re And that's also super imprecise.
2: And uh, Tim, you spent some time in the United States and you have a history from Australia. So when it comes to these wildfires, do you see similarities with the California wildfires and the wildfires you experienced in Australia? Or are there stark differences?
5: Well, I think both are true. I was there for 2009 Black Saturday fires, which is a huge complex of a number of fires that all happened at the same time. And many of them were ignited by power lines. I was there where I saw the the mobilization of the government, lots of grant funding, a lot of attention on innovation to being able to mitigate these wildfires that are occurring. But Australia has very similar challenges to, to California here in terms of the fuel that exists the, the increasing in temperatures, the extreme swings within seasonal weather. And yeah, there's a lot of similarities, but then there's also differences in, in the different types of fuel, the, the way the, that things are run, but electricity is distributed with, with conductors, uh, overhead conductors generally across the world. Uh, when there's a stressed equipment that is old and aging, uh, there's fuel, and there's extreme weather, Uh, I think you could say that there are a lot of areas in the world that have those components.
3: Yeah, so I'm curious about this because I know the the public safety power shutoffs are something that's been uh, a big deal in California. You know, people have definitely, uh, they're talked a lot about, you know, obviously it's a big inconvenience to have your power turned off. It's obviously more of an inconvenience to have a wildfire. But are, are these sorts of proactive shutoffs of power systems happening in other, are they happening in Australia and are they happening in other regions as well?
5: So they definitely are happening in Oregon, in Washington, in Colorado. Uh, but oh. interestingly, uh, Australia pushed back against the uh, preventative power shutoffs. Uh, and their reasoning was that switching off the power causes more deaths due to heat stroke and the the unavailability of emergency communications and coordinating egress and things like that. So again, these solutions aren't silver bullets. They're not one size fits all. Uh, Australia is different to California uh, in terms of the risk profile, in terms of the types of extreme weather that they're experiencing. But yeah, definitely here within the Western United States, there are other states that are adopting The the public safety power shutoffs.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. So can to be clear, can these gridware devices prevent the need for proactive power shutoffs? Is that one of the the cases, one of the arguments to be made for your technology?
5: So one of the challenges with PSPS of the proactive shutoffs is when you switch to grid off, you lose situational awareness. All of the systems in place to be able to detect when vegetation comes into contact or lays across the power lines during a windstorm or when a pole comes down because it was hit with 75-mile-per-hour winds. All of these systems go offline when the grid goes offline because they're dependent on the signals in the electricity and how it's propagating. So, you know, you could use smart meters to tell uh, if there's changes. If if a power pole comes down, it's most likely going to cause an outage. And you'll be able to tell with a smart meter. Well, if the grid's off, you can't do that. And so what you have to do is once you switch the power off, you have to wait until the storm is over. And then you go out and you have to inspect. Uh, And this can take hours, if not days, to check. Are there trees on top of the power lines? Are there poles that have come down? Because you can't just energize. You don't know if somebody's standing next to it. You don't know if it's on top of somebody's car, on you know, neck on, on somebody's house. Or as soon as you energize, it's laying or you got power lines laying through a field of grass, it's going to start a fire. So you have to go out and walk all of those lines. Now, where we come in is because our system is completely independent from the grid. We're solar powered, we're battery backed and we don't do sensing based on the power signals. We use other methods, Uh, so acoustic, vibration, optical. We're able to basically expedite or accelerate that time to re-energization, which is really critical because that inspection time can sometimes take days.
3: Wow, so Tim really let us really laid out some stuff there. The grid really makes our
2: forests a lot more vulnerable to fire, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. It's the largest machine on the planet, and it has no sensors. You have no (laughs) idea what's going on. You're blind. Yeah. Oh, fly this plane, but um, you can't see what's going on outside.
3: (laughs) No radar. Yep. (laughs) Nothing. No windows. No windows. Can you imagine?
2: (laughs) I'll get in that plane, sure.
3: Yeah, and it makes you understand how we end up in situations where utilities are doing like the PSPS events where they're just shutting off the power because it's, uh oh, those transmission lines are dangerous. We're just going to have to shut off this section. For days.
2: For days, which is also dangerous. Mm-hmm. Think about all the people with medical needs that need power. Yeah. CPAP machines and sleep apnea. That is one of the most ubiquitous problems that people face where they really need something. And if you shut off the power, people's lives could be at risk. But so to,
3: to step back, if we look at what we learned about fire in this episode and how to deal with it, I feel like what we're coming up with is this combination of indigenous knowledge that's been buried and high technology.
2: I know. It's a cool combination, isn't it? It is. We're re- relearning knowledge that we knew, and implementing it and mixing it with this modern spin. Yeah. I think if we if we can do it responsibly, I think it holds a lot of promise. I mean, obviously, we have to do something different. Yeah. Well, we have to learn to live with fire. And that also means controlling it. As much as we can. I mean, yeah. sometimes right. you right. can't. That's that's what is so scary about fire. Yeah. Is that it can really get out of hand. And I really, I do have a concern around these indigenous tribes setting a prescribed burn and it gets out of hand. And then what's the state going to do? How How politically would the state react? Because you know how politics goes. You always need a scapegoat.
3: Yeah. And at the same time, we just can't go back. We can't go back to... Fire suppression, that did not work. And that is one of the things that got us in the situation that we're in today.
2: Mm -hmm. We have to lessen the fuel load. we got to manage the forest better. We have to be willing to do some of these prescribed burns. People need to have defensible space. No more gender reveals with fireworks (laughs) in the forest. That's out.
3: Oh, my God. Yeah, we have to understand fire's role in our ecosystem, but also understand our own technology mm-hmm, better.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it kind of goes against all. OK, so to get a little philosophical for a second, like I get it. Why people have such a uh, reaction to wildfires and why it causes such anxiety for people. It's we're taught as children, don't play with fire. So you got to put it out. Like that's the natural reaction. There's a forest fire, put it out. Yeah. Obviously people don't want to lose their lives. We don't want to lose property. So, so it's the natural reaction to reduce the risk and, and put it out. But as a society, like you said, it's a part of our ecosystem and we get a chance to make fire our friend. I mean, people make friend a friend of death all the time. And when they do, suddenly a weight is lifted and that they can approach life's challenges in, in different ways. Suddenly their mind can see the problems from a different angle and a new solution is revealed that would have never been if they were coming at it from a fearful place.
3: Yeah. Well, when you aren't afraid of something, you're in a better position to deal with it. <laughs> Certainly.
2: Yeah. So I, like you said, we, we get a chance to live learn to live with fire, and learn to accept it as a part of what our future holds. We have responsibilities and we also have solutions. So it's not like we're helpless. No,
3: we're not. And with that, Earthlings, thank you for joining us for the first episode of our second season. And we'll see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home.